working a whatever job, trying to figure out what I want to do in life. And in some sense, I'm still doing the same thing. Um, but it's been a good time. It was a good time for me to be able to sh hear from the Word of God. And hopefully tonight's the same thing. If you guys have been with us, you know that we've been studying through the book of Hebrews. Um, I believe the, the title is The Superiority or the Supremacy of Christ. And we've been working through the text, ultimately seeing how Christ And so even the, the worship song we just sang was timely, and I think it fits well with the message this evening in that we truly are in desperate need of Christ. And oftentimes when we sing songs like that, we kind of think of Christ as just helping us out like a coach or helping us out as a therapist, and then we can kind of move along in our lives and navigate it ourselves. But tonight we shall see, and you have been seeing in Hebrews, that we are in utter desperate need for Christ to be our priest king, right? We've been learning that Jesus comes as, as not just a, a, a man, but he comes as God in the flesh and he serves and fulfills the call of being the Davidic king. And so he's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than Joshua, he's greater than all these Old Testament types and pictures and events. And the reason that's important is because as we've been looking in Hebrews, there's a congregation who has been suffering persecution. Persecution and leaving the identity of Old Testament Judaism to now follow Christ and all that he entails. And so there's a temptation within this congregation in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, and even in the midst of doubting of like, wait a minute, is Christ truly sufficient? Is he really necessary for me to obtain grace? There's a sense in which they want to go back to this social comfort of Old Testament Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews, who, who is anxious and worried and burdened for them, understanding the implications of leaving Christ, writes this letter. And it's all about Jesus and his magnificence, Jesus in his person. And so chapters 1 through 7, literally he's just building this case of how Jesus is better. And in particular, he's better because he is the kingly priest in the order of Melchizedek. And Josh preached through that, ultimately showing us that he had to be the king because there was a prophecy of one day a Messiah would come to not only bless Israel and save them, but ultimately this Davidic figure would be the one who would bring salvation to the nations. But he would also have to be a priest in that we need someone to mediate, to intervene between us and God because of the problem of sin. And so Hebrews, in a sense, is actually telling us about the big storyline of the Bible. And this is how it goes. God existed as Father, Son, and Spirit. Trinity, three persons as one God. And this glorious God in love and in grace created the universe, all that we see, the visible and even the invisible. And he created man in his image in order that we would dwell with him, that we would know him, that we would serve and live and find our highest joy in obeying God. That's man's chief purpose, to know God, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. 
And so man was created, Adam and Eve, our, our first parents, were, were put in the garden and they dwelt with God. They, they saw the glory of God. They, they tasted of the goodness of God. They were in the presence of God, which is the fullness of joy. And if you read the story of the Bible and you look at your own life and you look at society, you realize that it's not paradise anymore. And why is that? Because they chose independency from God's rule and reign. And so they sinned against God. And so God who is just and God who is holy and cannot be in the presence, the presence of disobedience cast them out from his presence. He cast them out from this, this tabernacle or temple, so to speak, in which they were cut off from relationship with God, which is death. The wages of sin is death. It is, it is spiritual separation from God and it is physical death as well as separation from our bodily functions as well. But here's the beauty of it all. And Hebrews is getting at this that God could have left us for dead. God could have left us in our sin, in our rebellion to destroy ourselves. He could have wiped us out like Noah in the flood because ultimately we're sinners. He's holy, he's perfect, and that can't enter his presence. But oh, God is loving. Oh, God is good. Oh, God is gracious. He is merciful. And so God the Father and the Holy Spirit and the Son they set out in a divine rescue mission in eternity past to, to work in space, time, and history to bring about redemption, to bring about the restoration of man with God, to reestablish his dwelling place among man. And he does that by working through Abraham, a no-name dude who's a pagan and doesn't even know God. And he blesses them with the land. And if you were at Coloma, you're, you're realizing that God is doing this so that he could dwell with his people again. He saves them from the hand of Pharaoh, gives them a tabernacle, gives them a law, these, these covenant guidelines in order that he would dwell with them. And the story unfolds and it keeps on going. God is working to bring about his presence among a newly created people. And in that storyline, this is where the prophecies come of the Davidic king and the priests who would ultimately come fulfill these promises of establishing his rule and reign with his people in the new heavens and new earth. And so for this congregation of the Hebrews who were tempted to go back to the Old Testament, to the old ways of doing things, the writer is so hard-pressed to let them know, don't you dare go back. Don't you dare go back. Because that promise of dwelling with God, that promise of restoration from sin, the promise of God's wrath being appeased and satisfied, the promise of dwelling with him and tasting the goodness of his glory is found in the arrival of the priest king. So chapters 1 through 7, he talks about the person of Christ. And then in chapters 8, as Josh preached last week, he begins to talk about the benefits, the work that flows from this priest king in the order of Melchizedek. And the first thing that Josh talked about was that ultimately he establishes a better covenant. For the first covenant was never able to change the hearts of man. In fact, the law, the Mosaic law, only incited and revealed man's shortcomings. It showed him a desperate need for a savior. And so the better covenant in the new covenant 
arrives in Christ in that the Lord promises that he will write his law in their hearts, that he will turn their hearts of, of stone into hearts of flesh that can now pulsate, can now sense the, the goodness of God and pleasures in the Lord and so on and so forth. So Christ brings forth a better covenant. But if you turn with me to chapter 8, as we turn into our section of chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, you realize that this kind of has great implications for the Old Testament system of worship. Because if the new covenant arrives, listen to what it says. Listen to what the author says. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What does obsolete mean? You guys can talk back to me. I'm Hispanic. I can't, you know. It's outdated, right? Josh McCullers, like he used this analogy of, of the iPhone and updating to the new iPhone 10 and the software of the 8. Once you update it, you, you just can't go back because the new software is just that much better. And so similarly in Christ bringing forth the benefits of the new covenant, the old one by nature is now obsolete. He goes on to say, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So in Christ's coming and bringing forth the better covenant, this has huge implications for the system of the Old Testament and its worship practices. Or in other words, it's, it's means for how to engage and experience the presence of God. It's growing old. So I don't know if you guys seen the movie Coco. We play it because... I'm trying to teach my daughter to be bilingual and speak Spanish, and the Spanish, you know, version is actually really good. But there's that sense, right, of like, you know, you're forgetting me, and then she's going to vanish, and no longer, you know, he's no longer there, right, if you've seen the movie. Well, similarly, in the arrival of the better covenant, there's this sense of vanishing, this old age that is now going to disappear and is no longer there. So if that's the case... If Christ brings forth a better ministry in that he ushers forth the new covenant, then what does that mean for sacrifices? What does that mean for relationship with God in terms of the law and obeying the law for Israel? What, what does that actually have to do? What does that change? Should I just still worship the Lord and go to temple? So imagine yourself as an 85-year-old Israelite, right? You're 85 years old. And you've heard the stories of God delivering his people from Israel, from the bondage of, 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 of Egypt. And how he gave them sacrifices in order that they would be made clean so that they could dwell among God and know God and see him in his glory. So every year you're going and you're offering your sacrifices and, and you're being forgiven of your sins. You're being cleansed and, and you're delighting of Torah and, and you're learning about God and you're serving and you're telling people about the, the, the Yahweh and, and his goodness and what he's done and his plans to redeem the world. You know, this is great. This is a wonderful thing. This is grace. No one deserves to know God. And yet he's doing that through the old covenant. So all of this is going on. You're 85 years old, and then all of a sudden someone comes up and says, hey, peep this. Messiah Mashiach just came. He has arrived. He's here. He's the ultimate sacrifice. He's the true temple. You don't have to go back to that as your basis for, for knowing God. It's, it's now mediated through Christ. What's, what's your reaction? Experientially, what is your reaction? Right? Transitions are just hard in general. 
You know, some of you guys graduating high school, some of you are in that limbo phase trying to figure out what school you're going to go to. Some of you are young adults in terms of careers. Like life stages, transitions are just really hard. When I went to Biola, like it was the worst. I had cultural shock. Because I was raised up in the ghetto in San Francisco, and then I saw white girls walking like barefooted. And I'm just like, what is going on? You have shoes for the purpose of like protecting your toes. Why are you walking barefoot? You can get cut. And I say that playfully, but that's only an, an illustration to show that literally it was just a hard transition. Getting married and having kids was a difficult transition. Where you're used to sleeping like eight hours and now your baby's just crying every two hours and it's in the same room. You have no sleep, but you still got to do your schoolwork. You got to go to job, work nine to five. You got to serve the church. You got to take care of your baby, so on and so forth. Transitions are just naturally difficult. How much more than when it comes to the reality of, of knowing God in a distinct manner because Christ has fulfilled these promises. And so what the author wants to do is say, no, 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 no. The new covenant is here. And because it's a, it's a new law, it does away with the old covenant in, in, the, in the manner of worship. But, but it's a good thing. So let me, let me show you why. And that's when we get to chapter 9. So let's read verses 9, 1 through 5 for now. It says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. So here he's getting into that discussion about worship. And, and he specifically addresses the, 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 the tabernacle. Not the temple, but the tabernacle. And this is important. Because the tabernacle, if you know your, your biblical history, is literally the formation of when Israel became a people. Saved from Egypt, God gives them the old covenant, the law, which is not just a bunch of do's and don'ts, but it's a gracious revelation of God in terms of how they're going to worship him so they can dwell with this holy God. So he gives them this old covenant, stipulations and guidelines and reg regulations for how to worship the Lord. And then he specifically talks about one compartment here, and it's the holy place of the tabernacle, Okay. So that's the first thing. He talks about the structure of worship. Context is key. So let just stay focused with me because I'm going to talk about just some structural elements of worship. You're going to be like, why do I want to know about a lampstand? This doesn't make any sense. We'll clarify it. So the first thing he says is that the old covenant had regulations, stipulations for how to engage and worship God. Right? And the first section was... The holy place. Then he goes on in verse 4. Behind the second curtain was a second session, section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a gold urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot know, now speak in detail. So he specifically just lays out the structure and you see him in verse 5 says, look, I can go into detail about this, but I'm not. So trust me, you're okay. I'm not going to go into detail. I'm literally just going to talk about the structure. Now the way this worked was like this. God is holy. We are sinners. Come into the presence of God. You get jacked. You're done. 
It's the reaction of Isaiah, woe is me, I'm a man that is undone. The wrath of God is going to consume me. So what God does is he creates barriers and provides measures of cleansing in order that we can approach him. And the way that he does that is be creating this system in which the priests who are mediators and represent the people to God and vice versa now step in on behalf of the people in order that the people can be cleansed, be forgiven, and continue in worship and fellowship with God. Now, the first section was the holy place. And he talks about several instruments, okay? Don't even have to worry about them. Simply put, this was the area in which the priests would do daily sacrifices, right? Sin offerings, sacrifices that would, 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 would appease the wrath of God. They would do cleansing, right, in terms of if you're unclean, not a moral thing, but literally like you touched a dead person, you would be cleansed so that you can continue in fellowship, so on and so forth. And then... That's the first compartment. The next one is the most holy place. And this is important here, okay? He talks about the Ark of the Covenant and he talks about the mercy seat. Now the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat were probably the most important object in the most holy place. The most holy place was guarded by a veil in which, as we'll see, no one entered but one year one time a year, the high priest. And in the most holy place was this Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which in the Old Testament talks about this is the meeting place, the dwelling place in which God manifested his glory and met with Moses or the high priest. If any man should dare enter into the most holy place, he would literally be struck dead. Because God is holy, we are sinners, and sin cannot enter into the presence of God. So let, just look at the structure. You have a structure, the first component, right? There's some services going on there for the people. And then you have the second component, the most holy place where the presence of God manifests itself in the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where atonement is made. Okay? That's the structure. That's where literally God's presence is at. Now... Moving on to verses 6 and 10, we're going to get the significance of why he's talking about this structure. Okay? Look at verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, he's going back to the structure of worship. The priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. Did you catch that? Probably not, right? That's why we go back. Look at what he says. The priests are in the first section regularly walking around, offering sacrifices and providing ministry opportunities, right, in terms of for the people, cleansing and all that kind of stuff. 
So there's this sense of, think about the activity, right? I was going to use the amphitheater as an example. When there's the veil, right, the little curtain that we put up over there at Kairos, typically when everybody's outside, it's, it's, the, it's the time where people got snacks, people are eating, you know, Gabe is playing whatever, spike ball, ball's going around, people are shooting the basketball court. There's just a whole bunch of fellowship and a whole bunch of life going on, right? Think about that as the holy place, the priests are daily in there offering sacrifices, doing so many things in terms of worship and all that stuff, okay? But look at the contrast now. Verse 7, but in the second, the most holy place, only the high priest goes and he but once a year without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So you see how activity, fellowship, service begins to slow down. Do you see the contrast? In the most holy place, the priests are actively serving, worshiping, you know, doing all these things for the people and themselves. And then all of a sudden when it comes to the presence of God, there's a barricade. There's a veil. And what... The author is trying to point out is, look with me in verse, verse 8. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. He's simply pointing out that in the manner of the Old Testament, there is limited accessibility, limited engagement and fellowship with God. It stops. It's cut off. And you can think about that progression of liveliness, of fellowship, of enjoyment in the holy place, and then all of a sudden, boom, nothing. Separated, cut off, no access to God. But one time of year, but one time of year, and... It's not like he can freely show up. He has to bring something and it says he is not without blood. So not only does he only get one time of year, but there has to be a means or a basis for him to be able to enter. So here are the things that we're learning about the old covenant system of worship. The first that we learned, it's the place of worship is earthly. Okay, it's earthly, it's, it's tangible, it's material, okay? The second thing that we learned is that there's this sense of regularity, that the priests are daily, the word that says there, we're regularly offering sacrifices, okay? So it's earthly, they're regularly offering sacrifices, and then the last thing that we see is in terms of the posture of worship is that it's limited, earthly, Regular sacrifices is limited. And then lastly, what we're going to see is, or the two points that we're going to see in this is insufficient and temporary. So look with me. I'm going to read verse 7 again. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time 
of Reformation. So this section is literally laden with Old Testament practice of the Day of Atonement. If you were to look at Leviticus chapter 16, once a year the high priest would enter to deal with the sins of unintentionality. In other words, these are sins that are not with a high hand, right? So these are the kind of things of like, man, you're trying to love the Lord, but you stumble. As opposed to you deliberately and consciously say, I'm just going to enjoy this like David did with Bathsheba and then go on my way and I'm not worried about God whatsoever. So on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the sins of that entire year, the priest would go about to bring satisfaction, atonement of those sins. And what he would do is he would have to enter into the holy place and cleanse himself by means of a sacrifice, first for himself by offering a bull, uh, a bull and then for the people by offering a goat. And all that signified was that their wages of sin is death and they need a substitute in their place in order to bring about this satisfaction of God's justice. And once that happened, then they would get a goat and the priest would literally pray and would list off all of the unintentional, non-high-hand sins of the people as a way of expiating, right, putting on those sins to that goat and that goat would literally wander off and just die. Once a year that would happen, the high priest would enter. And this would happen every year, every year, every year. Now, in one sense, you're like, man, that's great. My sins are being forgiven. But notice what the author says, that this day of atonement, these sacrifices are not or cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, what does that mean? Because I talked about we're looking at the insufficiency of this sacrifice. Well, this is what it means. Imagine if you were in that setting you just experience atonement, God's wrath is satisfied, your, your sins are dealt with. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, I just left and I got in an argument with my wife or I yelled at my mom or I cheated on my test or I lusted after a woman or I just started gossiping. And uh-oh, that day of atonement sacrifice was just for last year. Oh, snap. Those sins are still on my shoulders. And oh, man, I got to wait to the entire next year in order for my conscience to actually be relieved. Because until then, you know, there's no sense of, of my, my sins really being dealt with, right? Of, of the wrath being satisfied and then my sins being expiated to another who takes the burden of my sin and deals with it. It wasn't sufficient. And so it was insufficient in the sense that it couldn't deal with perfecting the conscience once and for all. And why is that important? Because we've been talking about the Old Testament structure, the barricade. When your conscience is seared, when your conscience is fallen, when your conscience is morally evil in terms of you, you, you rebel against God or you choose sin as opposed to righteousness, you, you, you now do not have access to the presence of God apart from Christ. There's nothing there. There's no hope for you whatsoever. 
So even though in the Old Testament there's a sense of grace that they can fellowship and interact with God, but ultimately there's no confidence and full assurance that you can just sit there in the throne of grace and lavish in the glory of God. Because now you have to wait. It's regularly happening. Constantly having to go to the temple to offer sacrifice. Constantly waiting for the day of atonement to come in order for your conscience to be somewhat relieved. There's no peace whatsoever. But here's the good news. Who was the one that designed the tabernacle? Who was the one that gave the plans to God's people to build the tabernacle? It was God himself. If you read Exodus 25, literally Yahweh says to Moses, constantly, you need to build it just like this. You need to build this just like this. And the reason that's the case is because the temple or the tabernacle in this case was temporary. It was meant to be temporary. Until, as we look at verse 10, the time of reformation. And the reason there is good news in that is that, remember the big story? God is working in such a way to bring about redemption, perfection, so that we would be restored and in fellowship with him. Because the Old Testament law was just a precursor. It was just a shadow ultimately pointing to the substance and the reality of Christ, the once and for all sacrifice. See that in verse 10? The sacrifices only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. It's external. It doesn't actually deal with the problem of the heart once and for all. Because the law only served to expose our sins so that we would know that we're in desperate need of the once and for all sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus, to come and die for us. So listen to 11. It says, but. This is one of the, the good ones. There's, there's Romans chapter 3 where it talks about, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law. Here goes another one. There's a problem. Our consciences, all of us, we cannot cleanse them. I don't know if you've ever sinned before or, or you've done something wrong if, if you're attuned. And there's just this sense of like guilt that you have that you just can't shrug off. No matter what you do. I remember when I was living in, in sexual sin prior to, to coming to Christ, there would be times that I would shower myself because of the guilt that I felt. And even after that shower, I couldn't let it go. It didn't leave me. It haunted me. My conscience in such a way was telling me like, dude, you know what you're doing is wrong. And that's the burden that we have. And it's not just some existential feeling. That guilt is an indicator of something even worse, namely that we've sinned against a holy God and his justice shall come upon us apart from Christ. We're hosed. But verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. 
Praise be to God that he is working in history in such a way that we lost relationship with him. But he said, I'm going to enter into space, time, and history and bring about the fulfillment of my promise. And the first stage is going to be the tabernacle, the law. In order that all would know that there is separation between God and man. And the only means by which man can ultimately be secured and have redemption from their sins is through the blood being spilt. But not by goats, because that only deals with external stuff. But it points to something greater. And that's ultimately the blood of Christ. So look at the argumentation, verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to have come. So I'm going to walk through this rather quickly. Christ the Messiah, right, he's the fulfillment of the promises of the one who's going to come. He comes as a high priest, right, in the order of Melchizedek. So he can serve forevermore in the temple, representing God and man. And he comes to the good things that have come. Not future tense that will come, but the good things that have come. Well, what is the good thing? Look at chapter 10. Verse 1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of true form of these realities. Do you see that? The law is only a shadow. It's only pointing to something that is better, something that is going to come. And what is that? The reality. But what was the law pointing to? Oh, it was pointing to ultimate and full atonement and forgiveness of sins. Well, who does that? Imagine yourself as a Jew. You're waiting for that person to come. Well, the Messiah, Christ, who is the priest, actually comes and now brings forth the reality of forgiveness of sins, of salvation, of redemption. And how does he do that? Verse 11, it says, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Remember the first tent? What was it? Earthly. But what about this tent? It's a heavenly perfect tent. But what was the first tent pointing to as a shadow? The presence of God. But wait a minute. I can't enter to the presence of God because I'm a sinner and I need a mediator. But the mediation of the priests and these goats aren't sufficient. But it's pointing to something greater. Who's it pointing to? It's pointing to the reality of Christ who in the heavens literally entered into the presence of God, the Father, as a priest representing man. And he didn't come alone. He didn't come empty-handed. What did he do when he presented himself before the Father? When he entered once and for all into the holy places? Did he come with the blood of goats? Did he come with these material things of these shadows? Or did he come with the substance, which is namely himself, his own blood? Realize how important that is. I was talking to my friend about dating. One of the things that I love to do is I just want to be that guy that hooks somebody up so I could be at the marriage and just be like, that was me. 
You know what I mean? And they just look at you and say, thanks, Marcelo. Like, there's just this joy. So I'm always pushing, you know, certain friends because I'm messing with them. Obviously, wisdom and discernment is necessary. Hey, dude, just take advantage of, like, online dating. Go on Christian Mingle, whatever. I'm not saying you guys should. Wisdom and discernment. You know, I told this, but go on there. And, you know, he's showing me these pictures of a girl, and she's very attractive, a beautiful young lady. And we're having conversations, and it didn't go the right way. She wasn't a godly girl, so it's like, eh, don't pursue her. But let's say hypothetically in my dream, she was the godliest of women. And he's telling me, dude, she loves the Lord. She serves for the glory of God. She's so sacrificial. She just glories in theology and just wants to disciple women to be godly mothers in their home. And he's going on, so on and so forth. Like, pastor, I just talked to the pastor. The pastor even told me she's engaged in her church. And I'm just like, dude. This is amazing. Show me these pictures of her. We're seeing the pictures. We're getting all pumped up. We're like, yes, yes, yes. And then I go, when are you going to meet her? He's like, dude, I don't care about that. Look at her. She's so great. She's amazing. I love her. You know, I'm cool with this. You would look at him and say, what is wrong with you? You must be demented. When you have the real thing before you, literally at your fingertips, so to speak, for you to be able to pursue and enjoy and lavish in. Why would you get stuck looking at this shadow-like phone, which is not the reality of things, when you actually can experience the joy of courting a godly woman for the purpose of marriage, displaying the gospel? And that's literally the argumentation that he's bringing forth. Christ didn't come as a shadow, literally just, you know, I'm stuck here. I got nothing to offer. Christ literally entered into the presence of God the Father, offering the reality of his, himself. God, a very God, truly God, the creator of heavens and earth. Read chapter 1. He is the representation of God, the full expression of God. By the word of the mouth, creation came forth. He is the Logos. This is God of very God. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself in such a way that he became a servant. He took on flesh. He took on humanity, the frailty of humanity. God of the universe becomes a slave, humiliates himself, puts off the glories of heaven to become a man that by no appearance no one wanted to marvel with. And he does that for what? In order that he would live the life that we could not live and thereby assure himself to be a perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who would then step into the presence of God and take forth the full righteous anger of God. A holy God who is kindled by sin. A holy God who rages against rebellion. A holy God who punishes and shall punish every evil deed that we have done. This isn't some Facebook friend that you just ignore. This is the God of the universe who is just. And Christ himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is sent, takes on flesh willingly as Hebrew says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, entered and tore the veil in order that he would offer his own blood. For the very purpose of what? What does it say? Thus securing an eternal redemption. Catch that? What is the theme of redemption? Redemption, and we'll wrap up with this. 
Redemption is this notion of a slave market term. So if you were in the first century, what would take place is, you know, you might have a farm and all of a sudden, you know, in agrarian society, it doesn't rain for like five years and you lose all your crops, you have no more money, you have no livelihood. So then you sell yourself to some feudal, you know, master and say, hey, this is what I'm worth. This is the debt that I have. I'll pay it off and I'll work for you as a slave. But some people got so jacked in terms of losing their monetary finances that they would be enslaved for the rest of their life. And so the Bible picks up this imagery of, of being enslaved, but he applies it towards sin. That sin is this slave master who literally has our foot pressed on our necks and we are literally in bondage to where our natures can only choose sin and there is no work, there is no effort, there is no righteousness in and of our own selves that can purchase our redemption back. We cannot work enough before God to merit righteousness, to merit freedom, to earn liberation. But by the grace of God, there is one who redeems us. There is one who pays the penalty, the wages of sin, which is death. And what he does is he serves as the ultimate sacrifice of atonement. And he goes to the mercy seat and he sprinkles his own blood before the true tabernacle, before the presence of God. And his blood is far greater than goats. Look at the argument. 13. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes in a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, so there's some prophet, right? They were able to fellowship and engage with God. And so if these shadows, if these, if these sacrifices had a, 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 some kind of efficacy to, to kind of cleanse us before God, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see the beauty of God's redemptive plan of bringing forth the tabernacle and the temple as a picture building forth or building towards the reality of Christ. And that Christ who died for our sins and rose from the grave showing that he conquered sin and death and ascended to the Father, to the right hand, who now reigns as our priest king, who can intercede forevermore and represent us forevermore. Literally all he does is before God, he's blood bought with my blood. He's mine. Every single day. And he's never gonna step down his priesthood like a Levitical priest who dies he lives forevermore at the right hand of the Father, ruling, reigning, interceding for us. Wow, what assurance that brings. But not only does it bring assurance in terms of my conscience is now clean, I can approach God and I can literally cast my sins before him knowing that I don't have to worry about, man, is there another sacrifice that's going to get me? But instead it purifies us from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. Catch that? The Lord literally redeems us, brings us into his own family, makes us brothers with Jesus, adopts us, gives us the Holy Spirit. Not that we would continue to live in sin, but that we would live for the glory of God. And that we would all serve in some sense as priests to the nations, 
showing them who God is. Because now the spirit of God dwells among his church. And as his church is the pillar of truth, declaring the glories of Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel that we can be eternally redeemed, people shall come to know him. So here's the application I have for you. I know I'm running long. Jump to chapter 10. Let's just look at the application that the author provides. He's the one that's bringing this case. Remember, new covenant comes. It makes the old obsolete. It's vanishing. But wait a minute, what about the sacrificial system? It's okay because it's only a shadow. And it points to the, the reality of Christ being the sacrifice of atonement who cleanses our consciousness and conscience and redeems us and brings us into family with God so that we would serve. So what's the application? What do we do? Chapter 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, see that? Access to God is only by the blood of Christ. No works, no merits. By the new living way that he opened for us through the curtain. He's the one that creates it. That is through his flesh, his own death on the cross. Since we have a priest over the house of God, here we go, application. In light of Jesus being, right, providing the greater ministry, the better covenant, the better sacrifice, the better temple or tabernacle, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So for the Israelites in this case, for them it's, I don't, I don't, I, I don't need to go back to the Old Testament. Instead, I can have confidence that my, my sins are forgiven, not in the goat, but in the true lamb of God. And so I'm going to approach him and I'm going to persevere and I'm going to persist. But that reality applies to us Gentiles too, those who are not true Israelites in terms of uh, DNA, genetics. Everyone has the question that they have to answer. How do we draw near to the one true living God who is holy? Everyone has to answer that question. Every world religion has to answer that question in some way, shape, or form. But what basis, what confidence, what assurance do they have? The reality is it's none. Because they have shadows, and not even that, distorted and corrupted shadows of the truth. But we have the reality. And so if you are burdened by your conscience who is telling you that you are living in sin, whatever kind of sin it is, I don't know what it is. I don't know you guys. I don't know what you struggle with. God surely knows and sees. But whatever that sin is, whatever that conscience, that the burden that you feel, realize that that will never go away unless you come and are washed by the blood of Christ. So turn from that, trust in him, and pursue him with the confidence knowing that he has sprinkled you clean by his blood. What else? 23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful. You'll see in chapter 11 where it talks about perseverance. They were experienced persecution and they wanted to give up and go back. But here knowing that Christ is the once and for all sacrifice, that he deals with sin once and for all, they can literally hold fast to the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and has redeemed them once and for all. So for us, what does that mean? We persevere. Whatever persecution you have, the reality is it's not nowhere near to the Bible, but in some sense there are some kind of sufferings that we experience, 
for the cause of Christ, whether it's in the college classroom or it's in school or, you know, whatever school you go to or, or it's at work, the reality is, is that we can persevere, hold fast, endure those sufferings for the sake of Christ because we know that he has entered the Holy of Holies and he has brought us forth in our union in Christ by faith. And lastly, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What was the temptation for them? Not to gather. Persecution, sufferings. When stuff gets hard, you kind of stop. You know, you start working out, you feel the burn, like oh, tomorrow I'm not going to go. Definitely not. I'm, I'd rather go to In-N-Out at, you know, 12 o'clock after Kairos and just eat that because that feels a lot better. That's what happens. Persecution comes, we shrivel back. But what does it say here? That we must gather as a body, the local church, not just this Kairos ministry, multi-generation, multi-ethnic communities that are blood-bought by Jesus to come together for the purpose of what? Encouraging one another all the more for the good works. And what are those good works? It's to magnify Christ and his gospel in all things. So brothers and sisters, the challenge for you today is this. Where is your assurance? Where is your assurance? Where is your confidence that your conscience is truly clean? Because all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is it in these corrupted shadows or is it in the reality of Christ who has dealt with sin once and for all as our sacrifice of atonement? And for those who are walking with the Lord and are weary, shall you persevere? Because faith is not just some intellectual stimulation that goes on as far as like, I assent to what Jesus did. But it's the notion of standing firm and sticking it out in the midst of suffering. And if you're at that point feeling weary as a believer, hold fast to the anchor of our faith. Christ is in the holy of holies. He has dealt with sin. And he shall come once again and will redeem us fully in glory, consummating his kingdom, where we will dwell with him and behold his beauty forevermore. And lastly, shall you encourage one another to be on mission, not to live the comfortable Christian life where we sing songs about Jesus, I need you in terms of a therapist or Jesus, I need you in terms of my feeling down, but in terms of Jesus, I need your work in my life in order that I can be empowered by the Spirit to serve the living God. To declare the glories of God to my unsaved siblings that annoy the heck out of me. Or to declare the glories of God to that antagonistic neighbor or the neighbor that I never want to go to because I'm awkward and I'm nervous and I'm embarrassed. But do you realize that God has equipped us to go by the power of the Holy Spirit in community to edify one another and stir one another in love that we can declare the glories of God to the nations. Brothers and sisters, the time of reformation has come in Christ. The new order of the new covenant, the new tabernacle, the new sacrifice is here. Shall we live and serve the living God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight. Thank